Yeah, right. So I think I've hit the jackpot with these two partners of mine in the way that we structured it. So the 10th way to de-risk your business is to separate the responsibility between three owners. I have in my business what I call strategic permanent partners, Glenn and Tyler. They're not deal partners. I see a lot of guys out, social media, going to events, and they have a different partner on every deal they do. That's really hard to manage. And so we made the decision we were going to become a full-service internal investment firm. The three of us were going to be GPs. We were going to split the responsibility three ways. It's worked out incredibly well. Set up your partnerships the right way and try to partner with the same people on every deal. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell, and I have an exciting show for you today. Our guest, Josh Cantwell is back with us. He was on show 433, which has been on what, 1,200 and some days ago, uh, depending on what today's show is. But he's the CEO of Freeland Ventures uh, and a strategic real estate coach. And a 40 plus million managed in private money, 3,000 plus apartment uh, units owned, uh, 25,000 uh, to five, 50 million. Uh, uh, range and properties purchased. Uh, he's an owner operator. Uh, just he's grown a, a large portfolio pretty pretty quickly. I, I would say as well. But but man, uh, just a vast array of knowledge and experience in real estate. And as an entrepreneur, we dove in today to nine ways to de-risk your business and investments. I loved these nine things. I wish we could have spent a whole show individually about each one of these, and we could have, but we highlighted a few of those uh, and dove in a little more detail, which I really enjoyed. I know you are going to learn a lot. If you just did a few of these things, you're going to be so much better prepared. Uh, yeah, please listen to all, every detail. Josh, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. I think you and I were calculating almost like 1,200 plus days, uh, you know, since you were on the show last. I'm looking wow. forward to catching up. Yeah, it's great. Great to be back. It's uh, you do amazing stuff. I mean, shoot, seven days a week for years. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, you had a lot of guests. You probably learned a ton um, and share amazing stuff. So thanks for inviting me back, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Honored, honored to have you back. Your business has definitely grown a lot since we probably talked last. Ours definitely has uh, that long ago. Uh, but looking forward to it. You all are doing some pretty amazing stuff. And and as the listeners just heard, I, I mean, they know a little bit about you, but give them a, a little bit more about who Josh is, your business focus right now. And let's dive in. I, I just want the listeners to know, hey, Josh is going to highlight today nine ways to de-risk your business or investments. And I'm looking forward to that conversation. I know the listeners are going to learn a lot. So, but before we do, man, in case they didn't hear, yeah. and just so they know, show number 433, that was when Josh was on before. If they didn't hear you then, tell us a little bit about who Josh is and let's dive yeah, in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, I'm a, uh, first of all, I'm a, I'm a family man, father of three, um, you know, follower of Christ. I am a volleyball coach. I coach club volleyball. Um, and I'm fortunate to have finally seen the light after 15 or 18 years as an investor about six, seven years ago, uh, really started focusing on commercial multifamily. We did thousands of residential deals and never really got free with that. We were always still transactional, made big incomes, a lot, big incomes, many years, uh, in the millions of dollars of range, but uh, never felt free. I always felt like I had to keep working. And today, I probably work about 25 to 30 hours a week. Um, I secret shop our buildings all the time. I show up sight unseen. 
but which is one of the ways to de-risk your business. We'll talk about that. Um, and just focused on what I would consider managed growth. Um, managed growth. You know, I think everybody has a different pace at which they like to grow. Some people like to grow really fast and buy all kinds of stuff and just go crazy and they leave this chaos in their wake. We've definitely had periods of like that momentum like that. Um, but I also think that times like these, you want to be really smart operator and you want to grow at a pace that's convenient and comfortable for you or for me. And so I think that's, again, one of the ways to de-risk your business is to grow at your pace, not what the pace is you see of everybody else on social media. So we'll talk about that too. Um, and so today I'm really enjoying life because I feel like I have a tremendous amount of balance. Uh, my kids are going into a bid tournament this weekend for volleyball and we have a chance to get national bids. Both my girls are really good and really competitive. Uh, so I'm going to shut it down on Thursday and go to this bid tournament. And I'll be coaching my face off, man, with these young girls trying to help them uh, earn a trip to Minneapolis. So that that's that's a little bit about me, man. A little bit of personal stuff and some business. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I appreciate just yeah sharing some real things about you uh, outside of business, as well as a couple business things that are at least one I wanted to ask you a little bit about before we jump into the nine ways to de-risk, but uh, you you mentioned working 25 to 30 hours a week and everybody's saying, well, how does he do that? He's got all this stuff going on, all this, you know, buying all this real estate, managing all this, these team members. We're talking about growing, right? Or, you know, you talked about at your pace, but man, how, how do you get away with only 25 or 30 hours a week? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's cliche, but it comes down to the team, right? So me and my two partners, uh, Glenn and Tyler, I'm the majority owner and CEO, but I have two partners. Um, and we've split the business up into three swim lanes. Uh, my swim lane is acquisitions, asset, uh, I'm sorry, acquisitions, investor management, investor recruiting, pretty much the whole capital stack, underwriting, a lot of the things at the front end. And then I want to be out of the day to day so I can operate outside my business and above my business. So then I can see everything that's going on and poke holes in things and, you know, think, think, think through things. Um, so that's my swim lane. Um, I've got a couple employees and staff that work under me. Uh, my my partner Glenn is is a partner and also handles our capex division. So our VP of construction sits under Glenn. All of our unit turns, commons, dog parks, anything that has to do with capex falls under Glenn. And then Tyler is another partner of mine. Again, uh, minority partner, but he handles um, asset management. And asset management means he oversees all the property managers. So he deals with the property managers who then deal with, obviously, everything from maintenance tax to leasing, evictions, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I've really focused in on what I feel is the two most important things, which is control the money, and then you have to be the one that rubber stamps the deal if you're going to buy it. You have to understand the capital stack, understand the risks. And so those two things, I think, is where you can control the entire business by controlling the funding. You can control the entire business by controlling the flow of money. You control the entire business by controlling which deals you buy and which investors you bring into deals. So I've taken th that to be my, basically, you know, my mandate, if you will, as a CEO. That's my mandate to do those two things really, really well. And then allows me to go secret shop everything else. So then if I see something that's wrong, which I just did this morning, I just went to secret shop one of our buildings this morning, I can then feed that back to Glenn, feed that back to Tyler, and then they will take care of the execution of those kind of things. Um, that's allowed me a lot of personal freedom, uh, a lot of income, but a lot of free time as well. Now, if we were in 
major acquisition mode, Whitney, right now. We're, we're definitely looking at a lot of buildings, but acquisitions have slowed down. Um, so that's part of it too, right? Let's be honest. Like acquisitions are a little slower, which is giving me a little bit more time for now. If that picks back up in Q3, Q4, then I'm going to be back to working pretty, pretty heavy hours. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I just know that caught people's attention too. And it's like, well, we all dream of working 25 hours a week, right? Uh, and, and then playing volleyball the rest of the time or whatever that may be, you know, or coaching or, uh, but no, that's great. Uh, it's really a team, right? It, it always goes back to the people, right? Surrounding yourself. Uh, but no, that's great. Well, let's jump in because I want us to have time to talk about these nine ways to de-risk your business or investments. I feel like it's perfect. It's always perfect time to talk about that, right? <laughs> to de-risk. Uh, but now as much as ever. Uh, so let's jump into some of those. Uh, and and uh, I mean, nine ways, uh, but let's, let's begin. Let's talk. Look, like if, if you see some of the stuff that's coming out, it was an investor in Houston that just gave back 3,200 units to the banks. There was another investor that just, you know, uh, Arbor just took back, uh, you know, a major, major portfolio. Um, and so you see some operators um, and some sponsors that are starting to lose their buildings. And that's obviously rule number one is, is, is not don't, you know, don't ever lose the asset because your limited partners basically get wiped out. And so I think it's very important as we look at this recession, we look at some financial distress, you know, there's definitely upside and opportunity, but we have to de-risk the things that we're doing. Um, and when things are really good for everybody, there's a lot of cowboys that make crazy decisions and they don't feel like there is any risk. Um, and so now you realize that there was true risk in the market over the last couple of years. It just didn't come to fruition until now. Um, and so there's nine ways to de-risk your business. So let me go through these real quick and then we'll, we'll dig into a couple. So number one is always invest for the long-term and get long-term fixed rate cash flowing financing. And I'll explain that. There's really three different types, but I'll explain that. That's number one. Number two, Always fast forward your CapEx and push it as hard as you can in the first 12 to 18 months. I hate doing CapEx organically. Number three, always secret shop your buildings and show up sight unseen. Number four, review your financials in detail every month without exception with your property manager and your CFO and with the CFO of the property manager. Okay, because the regionals, they don't you sometimes even understand your financials. The property managers don't understand the financials. So we force the CFO of our property managers to sit with our CFO and then me and Glenn and Tyler. So review the financials. Number five, commit to sharing everything with your limited partners. This is a big one, and I'll explain this in a minute. Number six, overraise capital and make sure you have at least six months worth of operating capital in your operating account. And I'm not talking about stealing from your CapEx account to cover operations. Okay, don't do that. They're separate. Okay, number seven, underwrite deals at 70 to 75% occupancy and know if your deal is going to cash flow or if it's going to bleed and how much bleed it's going to have. Because right now, a lot of deals are bleeding. Number eight, use the same vendors over and over and over and over and over again. We're talking about contractors and property managers. We'll talk about that. Number nine, buy in one or two submarkets and stay close to home. Do not diversify into eight, 10, 12 submarkets and then think you're going to be able to understand all those submarkets. 
right? I would rather own 500 to 1,000 units in one or two submarkets than own a 200 unit here, a 50 unit there, a 100 unit here, a 250 unit there. Don't do that. Then there's a bonus, a bonus way to de-risk your business, which I'll talk about. I've already kind of talked about it already. I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. Uh, but that would be number 10. So those are the nine, Whitney, just ripping through them. I mean, if there's one or two or three that you really want to peel back the onion on that you think would be best for your audience, uh, why don't you pick and choose where yeah, you there, are? There's a number of these that we should talk about. I feel like, man, yeah, this is a great list. I really like these. Uh, I mean, always investing for the long term. I feel like, man, that's hitting on a lot of people right now, right? Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate, uh, right? For so many, uh, you know, they didn't get that long-term financing like you're talking about, and they're going to feel it this year. And uh, and they are, uh, or they didn't plan, you know, for that, uh, which most didn't. Uh, but uh, maybe hit that for just a minute. Let's move on to a few other things. But, uh, you know, planning for the long term, uh, anything, oh, you said uh, cash flowing financing. Is that is that what, what I heard? Yeah. Yeah. So what I mean is by that is, look, there's really three types of long-term fixed rate financing. There's seller financing, right? That can truly be long-term five to 15 year financing. It's flexible. You can negotiate almost any term that you want. Number two, there's bank financing. Banks is usually you can negotiate five, seven, nine year terms. The trade-off though, typically is there's a personal guarantee. And then number three would be agency debt, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what many, many people did, as you would know, Whitney, is they went with bridge, floating rate bridge financing over the last couple of years. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do any bank financing because everybody hates recourse. Okay, Maybe one of the best decisions we've ever made was to buy properties and actually use bank financing, but very low leverage, 65 to 70% or less use bank financing and and fix that debt, whether it's through a swap, whether it's through, it, it goes on the bank's balance sheet, fix the financing for five to seven years. Because again, rule number one is don't lose the asset, right? So if it, the worst thing you can do is sell or refi at the wrong time. Well, obviously Q4 of, of last year was the absolute worst time. Transaction volume dropped by 85%. Nobody was transacting. So if you had to refi or sell, you were screwed because nobody was transacting at Q4 of last year. Even Q1 of this year was pretty slow. So those three types of financing versus, hey, I'm going to get the highest leverage I can get with the most proceeds I can get. And I want to go non-recourse with bridge or floater and then you know, you know maybe get a cap, uh, you know, a, a, a rate cap, you know, that type of thing. And then go with an extension. Well, as we know now, a lot of those rates doubled, mortgage payments doubled and tripled, and then now they're escrowing for future rate caps, and those cash flows are going negative, right? And so thank God we didn't do that. We, in some cases, went with bank financing and put up a personal guarantee because we wanted to invest for the long term. And I did not look at 65 70% leverage is very risky. Look, Whitney, I'll give you an example. We bought a building last year, maybe two, three years ago, for $16.3 million. The bank advanced at closing $12.25 million. Okay? Got investors, limited partners to bring in $4 million. And then the bank also gave us another $2.5 million in CapEx through a draw. So how much risk is there in that personal guarantee? That value of that building is not going from $16.3 million below $12.25 
It's not going there. And especially if we execute our CapEx plan, the value of that building is going to go up and up and up. Now, when I bought that building, it was making about 165000 a month of gross cash flow. Today, it's making two twenty five dollars a month of gross cash flow. Right, so the value of the building today is worth at least twenty-two million. If I got an appraisal, it'd be, it would be it would appraise at twenty-two million. I bought it for sixteen. My debt on that thing, I've taken a couple draws. I've done two million dollars of draws against the loan. We owe fourteen point two five. It's worth twenty-three. So what was the risk in that personal guarantee? Almost zero. So in that scenario, you're much better off sponsoring the loan personal guarantee. I'm okay with that because the risk to me was so low. I actually viewed the fixed rate or the, uh, the floating rate bridge debt to be more risky than the personal guarantee. And a lot of guys went with the opposite. Yeah. Your loan value is so low. Yeah, I agree. I love that scenario. I appreciate the example. I want to, you, you mentioned the CapEx a little bit. I wanted to just spend a, a minute there, minute or two, you know, always fast forward CapEx, like you talked about pushes hard in the first 12 to 18 months. Uh, elaborate on why that's so you know crucially important and de-risks the deal. Yeah. Look, like if you want to force value and true value add value appreciation, you're going to have to underwrite for some vacancy. And we've had deals drop when we bought them. Um, at 98% occupied that dropped down to 70% occupied on purpose. So we could really hammer out the CapEx. Then we would turn a unit in two weeks or three weeks, like a full turn. We would lease it out and get a four to $500 rent bump. I would rather do that and force the value quickly. It also de-risks my loan because the value is now higher. I would rather take an underwrite for some of that vacancy and maybe even a little bit of a cash bleed to knock the capex out early. Also, the other thing it does, it allows you to then settle the building down within 12 to 24 months. And so now all that contractor dust and all the moving parts are gone instead of having contractors working on your building for five years. That's gonna hurt your leasing. I would rather hurt my leasing for 12 to 18 months and then really have a quiet building that's stabilized and then be able to lease out and get back to full occupancy. So we've done this. Look, I've done 19 of these syndications. I've done it the slow way. I've done it the fast way. It actually de-risks your business by doing it quicker. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that as well. And I want us to have time to get to a couple more of these at least. But you, you mentioned uh, commit to sharing everything with your limited partners. Uh, I completely agree. Uh, but tell me about your process to do that and how you know you're sharing everything and, and how your team is uh, maybe... I don't know, simplified this process, right? You know, of updating investors on everything. Yeah. So um, so first of all, we I know a lot of operators that do not share their P&Ls and balance sheets. Let's start with that. Share your P&L and balance sheet at least quarterly. Um, we, we do our P&Ls on a cash basis, not accrual, because I, I look at accrual financing as witchcraft. You could, you know, accrual is great. That's how a lot of people do it. A ca- you know, cash is cash. If we have cash, we put it on the on the PL. So that's the one thing. I think accrual accounting is is I call it witchcraft. It's not witchcraft. It's generally accepted, but I think it's witchcraft because you can really kind of finagle the numbers a little bit with accrual. But that's those are the two big ones. Share those at least quarterly. Number two, all of our capital improvements all goes into a PowerPoint and the exact documents and spreadsheets that we use to actually manage the CapEx, we do not edit those. We share them as is with limited partners. 
the exact vendors we paid, how much did we pay them, how much per unit, all of that stuff gets shared once a quarter. Video update. I can't believe how many operators don't get on video once a quarter and talk to their investors about what's going on, the good, the bad, the ugly. Tell them everything that's happened, right? I'm also, limited partners, a lot of them don't know how to read a P&L. So actually share the actual P&L for that quarter on your screen share and walk them through it. How much money did you spend on insurance? Is insurance costs going up? Um, how much did you spend on utilities? Are you able to save any money on utilities? What's your plan for the next quarter? I love managing the business on a quarterly basis. So those are four must do's. Now, the other thing that we do is we always share our cash position every month. Now we share it quarterly, but we'll say, this is how much cash we had on January 1st. This is how much cash we had on February 1st, March 1st, and so on. This is how much CapEx we spent January 1, February 1, March 1, and so on. This is how much the bank owes us in a draw, January 1, February 1. So they see it on a monthly basis, even though we're reporting it quarterly. So it gives them a, some insight onto cash movement, right? So those are four or five, six of the things that we do every quarter without question. And sometimes I'm like, crap, man, we just, we were kind of slow this quarter. I don't know if I really want to get on the phone and talk about this, but I do it anyway, because it also, what it does is that as I talk through for limited partners, I know I'm reiterating to myself what the major points are that we need to continue to focus on and go back to the business and back to my partners and say, you know, we've really got to focus on this, right? Because if you force yourself to be honest and put it out to the world, you're going to be a better operator. You're just going to be a better operator. It's a great list of things right there. <laughs> this is good. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things there you mentioned, like a, a lot of LPs don't know how to read a PL and like, so do a video and talk about it. I, I think that is, it seems so basic, but most don't do that, right? Uh, and bring it up on the screen and talk through that. Ed educate your your LPs, uh, and I think you're gonna you're gonna retain more LTs L LTs LPs uh, by doing just those things, right? And thinking like that, and not assuming they understand all of this. Um, but the um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. And the cast position every month. I appreciate the list there of things that you mentioned. Uh, and, and you talked about uh, and maybe back up just a little bit. You mentioned uh, you all do this in a presentation, maybe internally, uh, and then you all just use that uh, for your investors yeah. as well. Maybe talk through that process just briefly. Yeah. So here's our process. Right. So our property managers are due to produce for my CFO our uh, P&Ls and balance sheets by the 20th of the following of the month. So if we close out January, it's due by February 20th. If we close out February, it's due March 20th, et cetera. At the same time, my CapEx team has to close out their month and report their CapEx numbers also by the 20th for the previous month. Then my CFO has one week to look at all those and go back CFO to CFO and poke holes in the numbers and make sure they're meeting budgets or make sure that they're in the right categories. If there's an outlier, for him to get an explanation of why there's an outlier. Maybe we had a large uh, water bill some month, or maybe we had a large uh, you know, unit turns, or maybe we had like back at Christmas, we had a bunch of ice and we had a, some, uh, some ice and snow damage. So Roberto, my CFO then goes through that. Now at the end of the quarter, what's happened, if you close out, let's say Q1 at the end of March, that's all due by April 20th. Then by April 27th, Roberto's gone back and forth. Now Roberto's got to present that to me, Glenn and Tyler on the 27th. And then I'm recording for my investors by the 30th, and we're paying out that quarterly preferred return by the end of that month. 
So everybody on my team knows that's the system. Those are the deadlines. That's what we got to meet. And they know that I'm going to be really, really upset if I can't record that video for investors and pay out the preferred return by the end of April for Q1. Okay. So that's our system. It's been that way for years. And like now everyone's getting pissed off. If we're not, if we're, if we don't have the financials from the property manager by the 20th and Roberto's not doing his thing by the 27th and we have our meeting on the 27th, 28th and I'm recording by the 30th. If that's not happening, like our, our, our uh, director of investor relations is like, she's having heartburn over that. She's pushing us all. Like I got to get this out by the 30th. So it comes down to setting these deadlines that everybody has to meet. That's worked really well for us. To the the CFO versus the asset manager, there doing that, you know, with the other CFO reviewing the financials, those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roberto. Look, he takes a lot of pride in the fact that we're hitting budget. We put together budgets. We spend a lot of time at the beginning of every year putting together budgets for that year. The property managers present the budgets, and then we know we 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 go negotiate those budgets with the property managers. Like we push the property managers hard to make sure that those budgets are tight. They're not they're not going to have a lot of fluff in there, a lot of fat. And then Roberto's like, I'm gonna, we're gonna manage the property managers hardcore. Uh, so it's really uh, Tyler, who's my partner and uh, asset manager, and Roberto, as CFO, kind of double teaming the property managers together to make sure that they're hitting budget. And if they're out of budget, why? You know, got to have a good explanation. And are you all third party management or in house? So we hung our hat on capex, and we own the construction company that's doing all of our improvements. So we didn't want to do the third-party management and CapEx at the same time. So we outsource and do third-party for uh, for property management. Okay. No, it's, it's interesting. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital. Making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.